A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone. Welcome to the History of England, episode 235, The Pilgrimage of Grace 2. And welcome to 2018, everyone, and I hope it will be a humdinger for all of us. In fact, I am confident it will be. Hope you all had a fantastic Christmas, New Year, and are now relieved that it's all behind you and you can get back to work. Please note, I've had to remove most of the old guest episodes from the History of England. Sorry about that, iTunes have a limit to the number of episodes which is fast approaching. So I'm going to set up a separate feed for them all at some point, but for the moment, they're all unavailable. I have a special sponsor for a while I'd like to tell you about, and in fact, I am wearing at this very moment, these are super cool, and I mean super cool, Studio Regent wireless headphones of the -the on-the-ear type, if you know what I mean. They cover your ears, basically. They sound as clear as a bell, they are so easy to use after all the wire-based ones I've had to throw away over the last six years, and actually, they look great too. I think they may be my favourite bit of kit, I love them. Plus, there's a special 15% discount for you all. Just go to studiosweden.com and enter England when you order. Plus, Agora Podcast of the Month is Beyond the Big Screen, which looks at those history films we love and hate in equal measure. What are the real facts behind the film? Beyond the Big Screen, available at a podcatcher near you. At the end of last year, I cruelly left you hanging. This week, we'll hear about the conclusion of the story, and there is the return of Mary Campbell of Anagrammatica and a weekly word, this time the word Queen. We'll do that at the end. So, to the story. Last time, Lincolnshire had risen in fury, at least in part against the religious innovations of Henry's reign. By the 11th of October 1536, there were 10,000 people outside Lincoln demanding the king address their grievances. The commoners were gathered in the fields and their leader, Captain Cobbler, demanded of their gentry colleagues they should lead them into battle. Now their gentry colleagues, on the other hand, were no longer quite so sure they were as keen as they once had been. It was reported that All the gentlemen and honest yeomen of the country were weary of this matter and sorry for it, but durst not disclose their opinion to the commons for fear of their lives. Now the gentry and the yeomen were billeted in the cathedral close and they used the cathedral chapter house as their HQ. And from their HQ they sent a note with their petition asking the king for pardon and then walked shamefacedly to the fields to tell the commons that, sorry, they were out. Captain Cobbler, for one, was not surprised. Much later he would grieve. What horsons we were that we had not killed the gentlemen, for I thought always they would be traitors. When the Royal Herald arrived from the King, his silky diplomatic skills were very much in evidence. How presumptuous then you are the rude commons of one shire, and that one the most brute and beastly of the whole realm, to find fault with your prince. But by the time the Herald arrived, most of the Lincolnshire rebels had already gone, slipping away as their natural leaders knocked the legs from under them. And soon the rest had joined them. 
For the moment, the king agreed to the pardon if they should disperse, and he was as good as his word, though Suffolk had orders that if they should return, he should burn, destroy and kill every man, woman and child to the terrible example of others. The Lincolnshire Rebellion was over. But in that first week, a 36-year-old lawyer called Robert Ask had been on his way back to London when he'd run into a group of the rebels. He was a Yorkshireman from Orton near Selby, quite well connected by birth to the noble Clifford family. Ask appears to have been as straight up and down as you could wish for, driven by loyalty to both the traditional religion of his fathers and to the king. Although Ask's involvement started in the same way as many of those Lincolnshire gentry that would soon walk away, Ask was utterly convinced by what the rebels were saying. And he took himself off northwards to his own country, to the city of Beverley in Yorkshire. And there he had the bells of the Minster rung. And when they heard the bells, the people came to its call. Ask made a proclamation that all should maintain God, the King, commons and the Holy Church. He devised an oath that all should swear, which included this and that ye shall not come into our pilgrimage for no particular profit to yourself, nor to do any displeasure to any private person, but take afore you the cross of Christ, and in your hearts his faith, the restitution of the church, the suppression of these heretics and their opinions, by all the holy contents of this book. Ask's movement became known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. The use of pilgrimage was a conscious and often repeated motif. Their banner depicted the five wounds of Christ, and when the Durham contingent joined them, St Cuthbert. All these symbols were conscious attacks on the core belief of the evangelicals, an affirmation of belief in the very things they sought to reform. It was a pilgrimage of grace because they sought to win the king's favour or grace. They sought to clear away the evil counsellors that had led him astray. Now, needless to say, that included Thomas Cromwell but by implication it also included the nobility of the realm and the bishops, conspicuously absent from that mission to maintain God, the King, commons and the Holy Church. From there, the rebellion spread like wildfire, spreading out over the north, Yorkshire, Cumberland, Westmoreland, Durham. Without doubt, many non-religious factors encouraged people to join the rebellion, so the rebellions in Durham and north Yorkshire were led by a captain poverty, and the contemporary historian Edward Hall furiously derided the rebels as hiding their real secular motives under a fake religious one. But, while hardship and poverty were clearly part of the story, so too was defence of the old religion. The defence of religion was at the very core of this movement. By the 15th of October, 20,000 were with Ask in front of the gates of York. The mayor took one look and opened up the gates. Ask kept close control of his pilgrims. They were required to pay for their food. They joyfully reinstated some of the monasteries which had already been dissolved, escorting the monks back to their old monasteries with cheering and shouting and celebration. And Ask put together with them a coherent petition to the king, a petition of 24 well-thought-through articles. Amongst those, the works of Luther, Tyndale, Barnes and the Anabaptists were to be destroyed. The Pope was to be restored to his rightful place, Princess Mary restored to hers, abbeys to be restored and the suppression stopped, a bunch of land law to be rescinded and a parliament to be held in the north very soon to sort all of this out. They also swore to expel all villain blood from the councillors of the king. 
like most peasants' revolts before them, the belief in the traditional social order was powerful. There was no egalitarianism here. There was no John Ball to ask when Adam delved and Eve span who was then the gentleman. Petition in their hands. Ask marched off to Pontefract Castle, the centre and symbol of royal power in the north. Now, the great men of the north had a choice, of course, as always. They could join or they could remain loyal to the king, or actually they could take the cowardly third way out and pretend to support the king, but actually do nothing, sit on their hands and see what happens. At Pontefract was to be found Lord Darcy and the Archbishop of York, who had fled York as the rebels arrived. Now, to do him justice, Darcy had asked the king for reinforcements and supplies, and they'd not arrived. And to be fair to Darcy, he was looking at rebel forces that now numbered around 50,000 people. However, it was later to be reported by two witnesses that on hearing of the earlier Lincolnshire rebellion, Darcy had said, Ah, they're out in Lincolnshire. God speed them well. I would they had done this three years past, for the world would have been better than it is. It's also worth remembering that it was Darcy that had made it clear in Parliament during the divorce proceedings that his firm belief was that the royal supremacy was hogwash. Either way, Darcy opened the gates to the rebels. And from here on, he'd be with the pilgrimage, claiming to be there from duress, but it's difficult not to suspect that he was a willing and active partner with Ask from here on in. In Northumberland, the Percys took the third way. Let's just wait and see what happens. In the northwest, on the other hand, the Stanley Earl of Derby appeared to be pretty successful in preventing any significant uprisings. And so, back to London again. Oh dear, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. The Duke of Norfolk was dispatched to deal with this problem. The Duke of Norfolk was not entirely divided with this commission since he had an army a fraction of the size of the rebels. So on his own authority, when 25 miles out from Pontefract, Norfolk cunningly suggested that they all have a nice chat and work things out. Ask now stood at his Rubicon. He could cross it. By going on the offensive, he would have a pretty good chance of crushing the royal army or putting them to flight and then marching on London. But if he lost, Yorkshire would be drowning in entrails as the king took his vengeance. Or he could treat and talk. We're going to give Ask the benefit of the doubt and say that he decided not to cross this Rubicon because he never wanted or indeed intended to bring the king down. He simply wanted the grievances of the North heard and redressed. But it's a decision and a reasonableness that would cost him dear. Anyway, they all met. Norfolk promised there'd be a pardon and a parliament to sort all of this out. And being conservative in religion, he quite probably sympathised with Ask and his pilgrims anyway. When Norfolk came back to London, Henry was hopping mad. As far as he was concerned, these traitors should have been crushed, not listened to. But eventually he was forced to see sense that the number of rebels was simply too vast for the small royal contingent to have dealt with. Before he forced himself to be reasonable though, he wrote to Darcy, suggesting that he kidnap, ask or kill him. To his eternal credit, Darcy bravely refused point blank to betray a man on his honour. So, reluctantly, Henry agreed to the deal that Norfolk had made. The process was important. The king could not be forced into submission, so... The deal was that the rebels would disperse and not until they'd done that would a pardon be issued and a parliament be summoned in York. It was enough for the trusting Ask. 
He rode to Pontefract to convince the rebels that they had won. They had achieved their aims. As he stood before them, he dramatically ripped the badge of the pilgrimage off his jacket as a symbol that the rebellion was over and the rebels began to go home. There's then a really rather remarkable event. In December, Henry invited Ask down to London to meet with him and spend Christmas at court. When he entered the royal presence, Henry threw his arms round Ask. Be you welcome, my good Ask. It is my wish that here, before the council, you ask what you desire, and I will grant it. Ask's price, of course, was Cromwell, the ultimate evil counsellor. In fact, of course, Henry had absolutely no intention of giving Ask or the rebels so much as the rough end of a pineapple. But we all know just how good Henry was at deceit. And so Ask was none the wiser, still trusting that the king had been genuinely won over. Somewhere around this time, the Pope woke up to the idea that here maybe was an opportunity. And in a sense, the pilgrimage became an international movement, or at least internationally recognised. It's a slightly tenuous statement, in fact. But a man called Reginald Pole was on the 22nd of December made cardinal and sent to persuade Emperor Charles V to raise an army to support the rebels with a cause, and Pole carried a papal letter of credit to allow him to raise funds for that very task. But it was too late. By then the rebels had been sent home, and Charles was hostile to the idea anyway, both of attacking a fellow monarch and turning his attention away from the Turk, with whom he was dealing at the moment. I mention this because it's worth at all times to remember that the events in England were of European import and fascination. Ask and Darcy themselves at one point considered asking for foreign arms, but also to introduce a new character to our narrative, Reginald Pole. I'll tell you more about Pole, but I'll do it at the end so as not to disturb the narrative. So, Ask returned north from court in January and he found a homeland that was not happy, either with him or with Henry because nothing had happened as Henry and Norfolk had promised. Henry had proceeded with the collection of a tithe tax, and his original answer to the rebels' demand had been found, and before he had been persuaded to be a little bit emollient, he had basically roared with fury, defiance and a refusal to accept any of the pilgrimage premises. So now everyone was worried that that was what he really meant. Ask continued to speak for the agreement and for the king, arguing that the king would honour his side of the bargain but everywhere he went he was now greeted with scepticism, and he found that by visiting London and the king he'd just reduced his own standing with the pilgrims. One of those pilgrims now decided to take action. Francis Bigard was a very different man to ask. He was of a great family. You may remember the Bigards had once been earls of Norfolk. He was a scholar, evangelical, a rousing speaker and a radical. He wanted to reform the monasteries, but not to disband them. He was also debt-ridden and deeply suspicious of Henry and his promises. Bigger decided that Henry's hand had to be forced. Forward now or else never, his supporters cried, and they planned to capture the castles at Scarborough and Hull and hold them until Henry anted up and ran his parliament as promised. Bigard's example sparked another insurrection at Carlisle, which was then besieged by 6,000 rebels. But forward now or else never was really what they should have told Ask when he'd faced Norfolk way back in November. Because now it was just too late. Bigard's rebellions failed. The rebels outside Carlisle were crushed and 800 of them taken prisoner. The gentry resolutely refused to support the rebels. Bigard's failed rebellion was a miserable failure, though his scepticism that Henry would do anything to help of his own free will was well-founded. But... 
Bigod's Rebellion was hugely significant because it allowed Henry to claim that the terms of the truce had been broken and that meant he could take revenge. He ordered Norfolk to cause such dreadful execution to be done upon a good number of the inhabitants of every town, village and hamlet as they may be a fearful spectacle to all others hereafter that would practice any matter that we require you to do without pity or respect. 150 of the rebels involved in the new outbreak were hanged under martial law, just for starters. Many were specifically taken back and hanged in their home villages. Then Henry went backwards. Many of the monks who had returned to their monasteries were hanged in chains. Those great men who had sat on their hands were tried and executed for treason. Thomas Percy, Lord Hussey. Darcy was judged to have been in Ask's pocket all along and suffered the same fate. Francis Bigard was tried and hanged at Tyburn in June 1537. The whole event has many echoes of previous popular revolts, it seems to me, with Jack Cade and with 1381, and the same attitude of the great men and king towards unruly commoners who dared to upset the natural order of things. The innocent and mistaken belief of the rebels that their king loved them and would speak for them. Henry's response sounds very much like that of Richard II. Rustics, you were born, and rustics, you shall remain. But what's different about all of this is this very strong religious element. The Pilgrimage of Grace is one of those battlefields of the confessional history debate. Traditionally, historians of the English Reformation would wonder at the general lack of resistance to Henry's religious reforms and paint the pilgrimage as a relatively minor event, here and gone in a few months, which never really threatened the regimes, and anyway, as something as much about economic hardship as religion. More recently, that story has been very radically revised indeed to suggest that if Ask and the rebels had crossed that Rubicon then, Henry's government would probably have fallen to present Ask as an honest broker cheated and betrayed by his king, a rebellion that had not just raised the north, but had widespread sympathy elsewhere. On the last point, there are some indications that maybe there was support elsewhere. In Reading, the rebel demands were copied out, and it was said that such copies were universal in London. More tellingly, London aldermen were commanded to confiscate all weapons larger than meat knives from priests. Robert Packington, a leading mercer and evangelical, was shot dead at Cheapside in London. But, personally, are Hamadouts. One historian boldly writes that the pilgrimage of grace makes a nonsense of the question, why was there so little resistance to Henry's religious reforms? Actually, I'd argue the opposite, that it doubles the question. There is little doubt that Henry's reforms created confusion, mistrust and disunity in a country that was, like most, deeply conservative and hierarchical. Equally clear to me that the pilgrimage cannot be dismissed as just another response to economic hardship, local relationships and local issues. They play a part, sure, but the religious theme is constant and eloquently articulated. But the rest of the country hardly stirs. Those examples we've just given of southern support are pretty feeble. And here was surely the moment. This was the opportunity. If it was going to happen, here it was. If those reforms were going to be stopped, it had to be now. One of the arguments is that Henry's reform happened bit by bit, that there was no one point in time when people could say, right, this is it, that's enough, now I'm going to rebel. But now, with the pilgrimage of grace, surely this was that moment. The notable thing about the pilgrimage of grace is that en masse, the people who mattered, gentry and magnates, 
may have had some sympathy but were a long, long way from rebellion. In Lincolnshire, they back out within a week. In the pilgrimage, they are at the forefront of the retribution that followed Bigod's failed rising, desperate to show their loyalty to the king. The magnate's response, if they did sympathise with the rebels, was quite remarkably craven. Darcy may have been an honourable man to refuse to kidnap Ask, but he was also cowardly enough to essentially run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. If I was Ask, I'd have been asking some serious questions of the man. And really, is it true to say that if the rebels had marched south instead of negotiating with Norfolk, that London was in dire trouble? The previous evidence of popular protest would suggest that Ask did exactly the right thing in negotiating, because 1381 and 1450 made it quite clear he had almost no chance of long-term success. No chance whatsoever. The way I see it, England would have a long way to go before it had a society that was capable of challenging the deeply rooted conservatism of the medieval world. It would need Pym and Hamden to challenge the king's authority, as in the Civil War a hundred years later. Much more controversially, and you are quite free to throw things at me for this, it needed the religious chaos and individuality that religious disunity created. What I mean is that both Puritans and Catholics would come to accept that loyalty to king and religion were different things. Throw things, but don't shout at me. The point I'm labouring to make is that whether they loved or hated Henry's religious reforms, he was the king, and loyalty to the king trumped everything. Except maybe local loyalties to the gentry and the great men. If the peerage and the great men had moved, then yes, maybe their clients and gentry would have moved too, and then popular protest would have been harnessed to create real change. But that didn't happen. The peerage barely shifted a buttock. The gentry ran as soon as they could manage it. I think the remarkable thing is indeed how little success their pilgrimage of grace had, how little it moved England as a whole. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. However unpleasant Henry's responses to the modern eye and ear, it is exactly the same as Richard II's and the servants of Henry VI. And it is exactly what was expected by his subjects at the time. Henry behaved like the double-dealing deceiver that he was. He also faced down the rebellion, refused to make any concessions and ended up coming out of the whole affair as the clear winner. The failure of the pilgrimage of grace gave him carte blanche to charge ahead with the dissolution of the monasteries and religious reform. And whatever level of challenge you believe the pilgrimage to be, it would never be equalled again. Certainly, Cranmer viewed the defeat of the pilgrimage exactly in this way. He characterised the pilgrimage in the same way as Luther did of the Peasants' Revolt in Germany of 1525. I say that Henry emerged the winner, and politically I think that is pretty much unarguable. But did he emerge as a winner in a personal sense? One of the intriguing questions about Henry is that dichotomy between the first half of his reign and the second. The two people in each half of the reign are almost unrecognisable, aren't they? The young, energetic, beautiful, popular erudite, the Renaissance prince, dancing, singing and hunting his way into the subject's hearts in the first half. And the obese, ill, vicious, tyrannical Henry of the final ten years of his reign. 
Part of that transformation is probably medical, and I plan a little tour of Henry's medical complaints at some point. But there was his fall and a two-hour coma in January 1536. His leg ulcer, which caused him constant pain and slowed him down and contributed towards his growth in weight. So, fat and in constant discomfort, enough to make many people a bit tyrannical. But more than that, I suspect, was the loss of his aura, the loss of the unquestioning love of his subjects that fed him. Henry expected such love and admiration, demanded it, needed it. I suspect the pilgrimage of grace affected Henry very deeply as a final confirmation that he and his subjects were no longer 100% aligned. And he began to see them as the enemy and he bitterly resented the death of the Renaissance prince that he'd once been and blamed everyone else for it. This is an idea a few historians have advanced. One traditional objection is that Henry had showed himself quite capable of vicious cruelty from day one with Empsom and Dudley. I don't think we need to pretend that Henry became a completely different person, just that from here on in, he pandered to the less attractive part of his character. What I think we hopefully can agree on, I think, is Robert Ask. In January, he'd continued to argue for the king's good faith in the face of Bigot's rebellion and attempted to maintain the peace. No doubt he imagined that his own good faith would be duly rewarded in the same way. To achieve this, he was travelling through the north in Norfolk's own entourage in March 1537 and presumably was being forced to witness the stream of hideous reprisals against people he had fought with a few months before. On the 24th of March, he set out to London with a letter of commendation from Norfolk to see the King in London. His reception was nothing like he'd probably expected and actually had had a right to expect. Instead, he was arrested and interrogated he was charged with renewed conspiracy, which was clearly contrived, and the words trumped up come to mind. In common with many of the pilgrims, he was to be killed in his own homeland. And thus, he was executed at York by being hanged from a chain on the 12th of July, 1537. Before I end then, this would seem like a good spot to take a few minutes to break from the narrative of the pilgrimage and introduce you to a character who will be with us for some time, the Reginald Pole I mentioned earlier in his mission to the Low Countries for the Pope. One day this man will replace Thomas Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury and when he does, his aims will be very different from Cranmer's. Rather than an evangelical leading England into a new world of the Reformed religion, he will be stoutly defending and explaining the traditional practice of the Catholic Church with all the authority of the Pope and the Council of Trent behind him. Paul and Cranmer's lives twist through each other. Though I don't think they actually meet face to face, they both have an influence that lasted long beyond their own deaths. Cranmer became the man who, through his Book of Common Prayer and the manner of his death, would become a champion and hero of English Protestantism. Paul, on the other hand, will define the Catholic view of the English Reformation and a pretty vitriolic view it will be at that. I think it's fair to say Paul wasn't a fan, which was not expected, because he'd started with every expectation that he would be a star within the English church, and indeed he was groomed for greatness. He was the grandson of George, Duke of Clarence, the son of George's daughter, Margaret Pole. Unlike Cranmer then, he came from the most elite of English society, from royal blood, and as a Plantagenet through his life, he would think himself an equal of the, any Tudor king. But for the first 30 years of his life, the Tudors were very much his patrons, with Henry VIII paying for an expensive education in Oxford and Italy for the most brilliant of scholars. In 1529, Henry began to pull in his favours, 
and he was co-opted into Cranmer's scheme to persuade the universities of Europe to back Henry's divorce. Pole would later pretend that he'd tried to avoid the assignment, but it's generally agreed this is self-justification after the fact, and that much of the success of the mission to Paris, actually, was to be laid at the door of Pole's talent. 1530 to 1532 was then a crucial time in Pole's life, where he became a convinced opponent of the king's divorce. Pole himself would claim that he argued with the king against the divorce in 1530. Others conclude that actually Pole tacitly fell in with Convocation's acceptance of the royal supremacy in 1531. But by 1532, Pole tried to avoid the whole issue by leaving again for Italy. It's in this period of his scholarship where he reached a conclusion that would colour his view of the English Reformation and feed his contempt for the heresies of the evangelicals specifically a belief in the limits of human reason and that theology was superior to philosophy. He began to see Protestantism ultimately as caused by that wrong belief in human reason. By 1536 then, he was being pushed from England to declare himself unequivocally in favour of the king's divorce and the break with Rome. Pole was a brilliant scholar with a European reputation and Henry wanted his voice in his support. He was to regret pushing him too hard. Pole was appalled at the execution of Moore and Fisher, and in May 1536 he wrote his most famous work, Defence of the Unity of the Church. In this, he viciously attacked Henry for his actions and accused him of destroying the unity of the Church for mere lust. He saw Henry's position as the head of the Church as demonic, denounced the murder of God's prophets Moore and Fisher. He was convinced that Henry had become nothing more than a tyrant, and despised those who served him like Cranmer as no better than jackals. He was utterly convinced of the supremacy of papal authority above all other. Kings were subordinate to priests. The mirror image of Cranmer's belief in the royal supremacy and Cranmer's equally immoderate sermons against the Pope as Antichrist. Pole ended with an appeal to Charles V and the nobility of England to combine to bring down Henry's tyranny. So there you go. Phew! As you can imagine, this was not a popular view at the English court. It wasn't much more popular at Charles V's court either. Charles was deeply suspicious of encouraging revolt against any installed monarch. It would have been an uncomfortable message for him as well. And anyway, he was engaged in a life-or-death struggle with the Turks. Throughout 1537 and 1538, Pole, Henry and Cromwell would continue to correspond, at once seeking to arrange a conference, Henry then trying to organise assassination attempts on Pole's life. Reginald Pole mattered to Henry. He mattered a lot. As a cardinal, an Englishman of royal blood and a scholar of European reputation, he was both dangerous to Henry and his freedom on the continent was a personal insult. There we go, Reginald Pole and the Pilgrimage of Grace. And let me tell you, religious confusion will not get any better in the rest of Henry's reign. Now, it's been a while since we've had one of Mary's contributions, and so we're going to finish this week's episode with the word Queen. What follows, then, is my voice, but Mary's talent, genius, words and all the rest of it. The word Queen can be traced back thousands of years to the prehistoric Proto-Indo-European language, in which the word Gwen simply meant woman. It has come down to us through Old Norse, Kven, to Old English, Quen, meaning wife, and later, wife of the king. Since the reign of Alfred the Great, England and Great Britain have had approximately 65 queens in three categories, queen consort, queen regent, and queen regnant. A queen consort is the wife of a reigning king. 
with a hearty boost from Henry VIII, who of course contributed six women to their number, some 55 Queen's consort have been recognised, beginning with Elswith, wife of King Alfred the Great, whose reign began in 871. The most recent Queen consort was Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the wife of George VI. He died in 1952, but the Queen Mum, as she was affectionately known, lived on for another 50 years. A Queen Regent is a monarch's guardian or stand-in reigning temporarily in his stead. Two of Henry VIII's wives were Queen's Regent during his military expeditions in France, Queen Catherine of Aragon and Queen Catherine Parr. Henry's grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, was a Regent of England during his minority, though she never held the title of Queen. A Queen Regnant is the female equivalent of a king reigning in her own right. From ancient Britain to the present-day United Kingdom, there have been 15 queens regnant, according to the broadest definition of the term. In the Kingdom of the Britons, Cartimandua ruled from about 43 to 63 as Queen of the Brigantes, a Celtic people in what is now Northern England. Boudicca, of course, ruled from about 60 to 61 as Queen of the Britonic Celtic Iceni, people of Norfolk in Eastern Britain. In the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Seaxberg of Wessex ruled from about 672 to 674, reigning jointly with her husband, Chenwall, and according to tradition, as sole monarch after his death. Athelflaed of Mercia ruled 911 to 918. She was the eldest daughter of King Alfred the Great of Wessex and the wife of Athelred II, alderman of Mercia. After he died, she was the sole ruler of Mercia. Alfwin, the Lady of Mercia, was the daughter of Athelflaed and Athelred II. She ruled for a few months after her mother's death until she was removed from power by Edward. In the Kingdom of England, the Empress Matilda was de facto ruler from the 7th of April to the 1st of November 1141, though never crowned. Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen, ruled from the 10th to the 19th of July 1553. She was a cousin of Henry VIII and a great-granddaughter of Henry VII. Like Matilda, she was never crowned. Mary I, Henry VIII's elder daughter with Catherine of Aragon, ruled from 1553 to 1558. Elizabeth I, Henry's other daughter, ruled from 1558 to 1603, and her mother, of course, was Anne Boleyn. In the Kingdom of Scotland, Margaret, maid of Norway, ruled from 1286 to 1290. It's questionable whether she should be included on the list of Queen's Regnant as she died at the age of seven, was never crowned and never set foot in what was then Scottish soil, but she was the only acknowledged legitimate heir to the throne during her so-called reign. And Mary, Queen of Scots, who ruled from 1542 to 1567. In the kingdoms of England and Scotland, Mary II, who ruled from 1689 to 1694 with her husband William of Orange. In the Kingdom of Great Britain, Anne ruled from 1702 to 1714. She became Queen of England, Scotland and Ireland on the 8th of March 1702. In 1707, under the Acts of Union, England and Scotland united as the Kingdom of Great Britain. And in the United Kingdom, Victoria ruled from 1837 to 1901. She also held the title Empress of India. And Elizabeth II, of course, the current queen, began her rule in 1952. A queen need not actually rule to be influential in matters of state, of course. Some of the queen's consort have wielded tremendous authority, as we learned with Edward III's queen, Philippa of Hainault, and will later discover with Caroline of Ansbach, the true power behind George II's throne. Whether regnant, consort or regent, the queens of England and Great Britain have shown themselves every bit as strong, clever and wily as the king's. That's it from me and from Mary then. 
Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for all your comments on iTunes, the website, Facebook, and all that sort of thing. Good luck, and have a great week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.